0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Merry Christmas to all of y'all, by the way. This stuff on stage is for Night of Alleluias. I don't know if you can see it. It's this weekend, uh, 6 o'clock. Be here. It's going to be great. Um Christmas is one of my favorite times of year. We have little kids in my house. And so the wonder of a child over the Christmas season is so... Miraculous. We have these little traditions that we do and to see my kids just light up at the different things that are happening in our house is really incredible. In preparation for this sermon, I was doing some research and came across a story of a little kid who was writing a letter to God about the things he wanted for Christmas. So he sits down to write this letter and the first line he starts to write it, it says, God, for the last six months, I've behaved really, really well. And then he takes a moment to reflect and he has to cross out that line and he starts on the next line. He says, for the last three months, I've behaved really, really well. And this kid's doing an honest moment of reflection. He decides, no, I can't do that either. So he starts on the next line, third line, and he starts writing, God, for the last two weeks, I've behaved really, really well. And then after some additional consideration and deliberation the kid just gets up from the table he's writing at Goes over to the place in the home where the family has a nativity scene on display He grabs mary He puts her in his pocket. He goes back to the table. He starts writing on the next line dear god If you would ever like to see your mother again <laughs> So we are going to be talking about the family of god today we're not going to be talking about mary mary we are going to be talking about our Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to be continuing our Christmas sermon series called Christmasology where we're taking a deeper look at the meaning of Christmas and we are in Matthew chapter 2. Now, before I get to our text this morning, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1 and I want to talk for a moment about the purpose and intent of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's purpose for writing and his intent For writing his gospel is to clearly demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. If you flip in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse, the Bible says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Say that with me. Jesus the Messiah. Directly following this verse, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus. There's some interesting points about Matthew's genealogy that we can't go into. One of those is Matthew ends his genealogy with Joseph as Jesus' father. But Joseph wasn't actually the biological father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the legal father. But Matthew wants to link Jesus, at least legally, with David. And then Matthew goes even farther back from David to Abraham. Abraham. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, Thus were the fourteen generations from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the birth of the Messiah. And right before Matthew records the story of Jesus' birth, he says in the 18th verse of the first chapter, This is the birth of, here's the phrase, Jesus the Messiah. So the nation of Israel reading Matthew's gospel would immediately be tuned into this type of language. Wait a second. Matthew is not recording Jesus as a good man. He's not even recording Jesus as a great man. Matthew's also not recording Jesus as a prophet. Matthew's recording Jesus as the Messiah, the foretold deliverer of Israel. And that brings us to our text this morning In Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. If you turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, 14 through 16, we get this story where Matthew refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And in this passage of Scripture, uh, like all the passages of Scripture we're using to develop this sermon series out of, we're speaking through some of what the prophecies in the Old Testament have to say about the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. Here we see one of those statements. Let me read to you. The Bible says this. So he, he in this case is Joseph, legal father of Jesus, took the child, Jesus and his mother, Mary, during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Let me set this up. We skipped over one of the names of Jesus in Matthew 2, which is shepherd. We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. But around Matthew chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter, these sorcerers these magi from a pagan land in the east likely persia see something in the sky that alerts them that so, that someone significant has been born magi would have been astronomers or astrologers or sorcerers and the word we use in matthew to describe these men magi is the word from which we derive our english word magician now, these guys would have read lots of text from lots of different cultures and would have been familiar with some of the Old Testament literature. When they see the star in the sky, that signals to them that someone significant has been born. So they leave their hometown and they go in search of this individual. When they get to the land of Herod, king of the Jews, they ask him, because they think surely he's going to know, where is the Messiah and where has he been born? And Herod, who's king and realizes that if the Messiah has in fact been born, it would usurp his power, says, I don't know, but when you find him, would you please come back and tell me so that I can go worship this individual as well? The Magi are like, sure, and they keep going about their merry way. Now, we don't know that it's three for sure individuals that left their country of Persia and go to find the the foretold Messiah, Jesus, we traditionally think it's three because of the gifts that were given: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these guys come to the place where uh, Jesus is. They realize that Herod's plan was to figure out the location of Jesus so he could put Jesus to death. They decide they're not going to go back and tell Herod what happened. When Herod realizes this, he's absolutely furious. These Magi have decided not to follow through with the word they gave him, so he decides he's going to put all the children in Bethlehem to death and all the children in the vicinity of Bethlehem to death, two years old and younger, to fit with the timeline that the Magi had suggested to him. An angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, here's what Herod's going to do. So you need to take your son and your baby mama and you need to go to Egypt. And that's exactly what Joseph does. So at this point, we're thinking in terms both of the fact that Matthew wrote his gospel to clearly show Jesus was the Messiah. And we're also trying to assume the point of view of an Israelite who would have been reading this material or would have been exposed to this material. Israelites who would have read this immediately would have noticed that Matthew is using a passage from Hosea to clearly indicate Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew uses the word fulfillment in his gospel to describe the link of Jesus to this passage. And here's Matthew's point. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel should have been. That's what Matthew wants his audience to know. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel should have been. So let's go to Hosea chapter 11. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 4 where we get an idea of what went wrong with Israel. The Bible says this in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called out of Egypt my son. But the moment they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to Baals. They burned incense to images It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. I want to see a show of hands in the audience this morning. How many of you have been blessed with the opportunity to raise Or to know a teenager. Let me see a show of hands. Most of us. I think when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, you know that season in life where you were raising your teenager? That's exactly what it felt like to try and develop the Israelites. The more I tried to give these guys structure, the more I tried to give these guys discipline, the more they rebelled away from me. They didn't realize it was I who was doing their laundry. They didn't realize it was I who did all the grocery shopping and kept the cupboard stocked with plenty of food to eat. And the more I tried to lead and love, the farther away from me these unruly teenagers went. This is exactly what's happening in Hosea chapter 11. God's saying, man, I delivered these guys. I loved them. I tried to give them discipline and structure and lead them into health and happiness and prosperity and wellness. But the more discipline and the more structure and the more consistency I tried to provide, the farther away from me these guys ran. So God has to intervene. And He intervenes by giving His Son. Matthew's Gospel is very unique in how it starts out. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah... Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel should have been. An Israelite reading this text would be honed in razor sharp on this message. Now I want to take your mind through some Israelite kingdom history right now. And I want to map out for you the similarities between the history of the Israelites and the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is precisely what Matthew's going to do for us here. Let's go back in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Jesus, you see, leaves Bethlehem, goes to Egypt... And he's surrounded by the death of the firstborn children in the area that he lives in. In Exodus chapter 4 verses 22 and 23, God's people are in captivity in Egypt. And God decides to deliver his people because he wants them to be able to worship him. God wants a relationship with Israel, his son. So God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 4 to go to Pharaoh. And this is what I want you to say. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you to let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. The same way the Lord Jesus Christ is delivered from death of firstborn sons that surround him The nation of Israel is delivered from the death of the firstborn children that surround them. If we're following the context in the history of Israel, from the Passover, that significant moments of deliverance from their captivity in Egypt, they leave the nation of Egypt. There's actually a point in history where the Egyptians are saying, here, take our stuff, like whatever it takes you to get out of our land. Here you go. Now go. And then all of a sudden Pharaoh realizes like, wait a second, all our employees and all our slave labor just hit the road. We gotta go get these guys and bring them back. So the Egyptians pursue. And in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are standing on the shores of an impassable physical boundary called the Red Sea. In front of them, they can't progress because nobody knows how to swim. And in back of them they can't retreat because they've got an an enemy army coming to take them into captivity again. They have no way that they can be delivered. And in Exodus chapter 14, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the Red Sea. And when he does, the Bible says God turns the strong east wind to cause the waters to recede and turns the land underneath those waters into dry land. In verse 22, the Israelites went through the Red Sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. You know, it's funny the way that the scriptures play themselves out in in your life. A couple of months ago, I was working with a a young man who was really discouraged. And I was trying to give him some good uh, pastoral encouragement. And can you believe that not everyone on the face of God's earth is open all the time to pastoral encouragement? So I'm trying to give this guy some encouragement, and he just bolts. He says, forget you, I'm out of here. And he runs away from me, and we're by Shinny Lake. And he runs onto a, a boat dock in Shinny Lake, and the lake right now is completely drained because they're rebuilding a dam. So the boat dock would have stood about three feet off the surface of the water if Shinny Lake was at regular depth. But right now there's no water in it, so the boat dock's about ten feet off the base of the of the lake, And I chase the kid to the boat dock, and he's like, leave me alone, get out of here. If you don't, I'll jump. And I'm like, you know I can't leave you alone. I got the conviction of God on me. I'm like white on rice as far as you're concerned. You better just break yourself, all right? He looks at me, and then he looks down about 10 feet, probably from about this high down to the bottom of Shinny Lake, which there's no water in it. And he looks back at me, and he looks down. I thought, Lord in heaven, this young man is going to jump off this boat dock, And try to run away from me into Shinny Lake. That's exactly what this guy did. Now, in the scriptures, when the water receded in the Red Sea, the the ground beneath the sea is dry. When this kid jumps from a boat dock onto the bottom of Shinny Lake, he sunk about waist deep. And I thought I got him. He's not going anywhere. And he shimmied out of there. And he starts walking into Shinny Lake. And at this point, I realize I'm going to have to jump too. And I got about 100 pounds on this guy. So I jump and I sink about chest deep. After 10 minutes of trying to wriggle out, I finally ended up catching up to the guy. And I thought as I was studying for this sermon, like, Lord, if I'm ever in that position again and you would decide to make the land below Shinny dry, that would be just fine with me. So the Israelites are delivered into freedom through the waters of the Red Sea. Now let's remember Matthew's Gospel, Okay. Matthew's just recorded Jesus' flight to Egypt and how the deaths of firstborn children surround that scenario. And the Israelites were delivered by death of firstborn out of Egypt. The Israelites then were delivered through water into freedom as they, flee, as they fled Pharaoh and the, in Pharaoh's army. Look what the very next thing Matthew records in his Gospels in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus' baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water... And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice came from heaven. Listen to what the voice says. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Israel is delivered through death of firstborn, through the water of the Red Sea, into the wilderness. Jesus delivered through death of firstborn, through the waters of baptism, and now experiences another kind of deliverance through the wilderness. What do we know happens in the life of the Israelites after they experience deliverance through the waters of the Red Sea? They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's recorded in the book of Numbers. If we go to the book of Numbers... We could see quickly in Numbers chapter 32, verse 13, that the Lord's anger burned against Israel and made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation of those who had gone and done evil in his sight were gone. So here's what happens. God's frustrated with the Israelites who have been disobedient. And he decides after their deliverance through the waters of the Red Sea that nobody who was with that original group is going to get to see the land of promise because they've committed too much sin in my eyes. So God's behavior towards his son Israel is corrective. And he wanders around, his son Israel wanders around in the wilderness for 40 years in hopes of correcting that behavior. Look in Matthew's Gospel, very next chapter, chapter 4. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Verses 1 and 2, Jesus was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Friends, let me just say at this point, an an Israelite person who's reading Matthew's Gospel would not have been able to overlook the symbolism and significance of the similarity between Jesus' life and the most significant events describing the deliverance of God's people from their captivity in Egypt. But while God's behavior with Israel was corrective, God's behavior through the Lord Jesus Christ was redemptive for all of those individuals who couldn't get it right. In other words, Matthew, through his gospel, is saying, all of you who are nationally Israelites... Pay attention, because everywhere you made a mistake, Jesus Christ did it perfectly. Every place God had to be corrective in his behavior with you, through Jesus Christ, God is redemptive. And that's what the significance of the Son is all about. There are two things I want to leave you with this morning. The first is that through God's Son, God fulfills every single promise he makes to his people. Every single promise God makes to His people, He fulfills through His Son. Any Israelite that's reading Matthew's Gospel would first note that he's recalling Hosea chapter 11 and would have known the whole book of Hosea, although probably wouldn't have called it a book, and would have realized how Hosea starts. And so if you're following along and you're taking notes, you need to write down Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. This is a place where Hosea re- states a prophecy god made in a covenant god established with abraham and in the 10th verse of hosea chapter 1 hosea recalls it like this the israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to the israelites you are not my people in that same place they will one day be called children of the living god there are three major prominent promises God made to his people. Just write them down. In Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant that God establishes with Abraham promises that Israel will be a nation forever. In the book of Deuteronomy, starting in chapter 10 and ending at about chapter 20, off and on through about those 10 chapters, we have what's called the Palestinian covenant where God establishes a land for his people forever. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7 through David, God promises a king forever. Each one of those promises is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not coincidental that Matthew references Hosea who starts out by referencing the promise made to Abraham and saying, look, where God tried to lead and where God tried to get you to follow and where God tried to get you to serve Him, you would not listen. But God made you a promise, Israel, that your people would number the sand on the seashore that no one could even count them. And God has to do something to redeem you and to redeem the world. And through His Son, His firstborn Jesus Christ, every single promise He made to you, Israel, would be fulfilled. And friends, every promise God makes to you and to me through his word is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen this morning? Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because it is in Jesus Christ that every single promise God made to each of us would be fulfilled when we celebrate that. But the second thing I think that makes the son extremely significant is not just that God through his son fulfilled his promises to his people. It's that God through his son is calling you out of bondage. God through his son is calling you out of bondage. I just briefly mentioned those covenants, the three primary covenants God established with his people because it's linked to Hosea chapter 1. All Israelites reading Matthew's gospel would have been familiar with that. But I also don't have time in the New Testament to cover every time a New Testament writer uses Egypt or slavery as a metaphor for sin or sorrow and suffering in this life. All over the New Testament, the New Testament writers use Egypt as a symbol for slavery, as a symbol for sin, and slavery as a symbol for some sort of suffering in this life. And in the same way God delivered his people out of Egypt and freed them from their slavery, God can deliver you out of your sinfulness and suffering through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what the message of the Messiah is really about. You know, the holiday season sometimes makes those kinds of things in our own lives more obvious. We're around a lot of family and usually it's our family who can see through our junk the clearest. And so those sins that we might otherwise be able to hide from our friends and acquaintances when we're around our family, it's like looking our own junk right in the face. Or maybe you don't have a a sin that you're hiding. Maybe it's some type of suffering. Maybe these are the first holidays you're going to spend with a family that's broken. Or maybe this will be your first holiday season having lost a significant loved one. Or maybe there's something else that this holiday season reminds you of. Maybe your family's intact and things are going well, but your mind is drawn to seasons past where things were miserable and they were sorry and they were sad. And even though they're okay now, maybe your mind is filled with regret that you can't go back and remake some of those times. Wherever you fall in any of those categories or any in between, God is saying to you, just like he said to all people All over the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, come to me and let me deliver you from that bondage. From the burden of that sin or the burden of that suffering. The deliverance you can experience through Jesus Christ is the same today as it was for the Israelites by God's power back when they were delivered from Egypt. And that's also why we celebrate Christmas. Because through the Son of God, we can all be set free. Amen? I'm going to conclude with a prayer, and after I pray, whatever uh, sinfulness that is in your life that you'd like us to pray for, we invite you to come forward today. And if there's not sinfulness, but maybe there's just suffering, maybe you're just carrying a heavy burden into this holiday season, Jesus is still saying, come to me and let me deliver you from that bondage. I'll pray, and when I finish, you just stand with me while together we sing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the opportunity to spend this Christmas season rejoicing that Jesus Christ is your true son, the true foretold Messiah, through whom every promise you've ever made us is fulfilled, by whom we can all be delivered. I pray that any here who have hidden junk in their life, God, that they would hand that over to Jesus and allow him to deliver them from that. And if there's any here who are suffering and just experiencing some sorrow or sadness, God, I pray that you would deliver them from that this morning as well. Let this Christmas season be the most blessed yet for these people. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.